Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're talking about the short story of Relays and Roses, originally published in Worlds of If in 1970. And reprinted in the story collection Castle of Days. Um, of Relays and Roses is, at first glance, a story about an algorithm-based software program that matches perfectly suited people for marriage, for one another, in order to get married. Um, at a second glance, at least by my lights, Glenn, and I, I, I'm going to be excited for this discussion, I think it's a pretty cynical story. And um, as with many wolf stories, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. So I want to save it all for the recap and discussion here. Glenn, why don't you take us through the story? Gladly. Edward Teal Smith doesn't believe in luck. He believes in hard work and the theory of probability. Nonetheless, Ed's in a tough situation, and everyone around him keeps wishing him good luck, even his own lawyers. Ed enters the chamber of the U.S. Senate and finds it hushed, sedate, funereal even. And Brandon, there's some uh, real wolfish writing in this paragraph, and uh, one line that I particularly like is a simile comparing the technicians setting up the cables to broadcast this Senate hearing with spiders making webs. It's great. Uh, I, I love I love that simile as well. And what I love about this opening section is the kind of stakes Wolf draws us into immediately for all of society that's involved in this hearing. We're immediately thrown into the situation where we're not sure yet, but the stakes are really high and everybody's tuned in to figure out what's going to happen. It's like if everybody watched C-SPAN for a day for some reason. <laughs> yeah, that's right. As you say, Brandon, in fine wolf fashion, we the readers don't actually have any idea what's going on, uh, even as this Senate hearing gets underway. And indeed, Wolf taunts us a little bit here. Uh, he has the, the presiding senator address the audience in the chamber with, with this line. He says, most of you are doubtless aware of the subject of these hearings. And, and Brandon, I went on to the next page thinking that we were actually about to get an early Wolf's story in which one character presents exposition to another but we don't we don't no not at all not at all it takes us quite a bit and in fact we have two you know as as you'll as we'll walk through we have two interviews before we even get back to our main character that's introduced and thrown away in the first short paragraph of this story <laughs> yeah that's right there's some real real trickery here wolf has definitely tricked us uh, and i i loved it i do want to bring up um just the description of the senator, uh, which I think will be important kind of in thinking about the story um, in our discussion. Wolf describes the senator this way. He says, the senator in the center who chewed tobacco and called square dances when he was electioneering in his home state believed in dignity and decorum for these hearings. Um, and I think that that's our first indication that there's Wolf is commenting on society in some way through this story and in particular our representative democracy so um, yeah that's a beautiful line there and that description of you know presenting him as someone who, who who presents one face to one group of people and another face to a, a different group of people yeah and square dancing is like a classic i don't know matchmaking tradition the the kind of dance is what we do in north america uh, to engage in these sort of communal 
Yeah, match, matchmaking. matchmaking activities, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't noticed that. That's a really great observation. One thing I will also point out too, Brandon, about that, that passage that you just quoted here is this senator in the center, which comes up repeatedly. And I think this is just a little homonym that Wolf really thought was clever and funny, but it, it, I did not like it at all in this story. <laughs> I, I, I breezed by it. I skimmed through that, I <laughs> yeah, guess. I, it didn't really stick out to me at all. Oh, uh, it was clear. To me, it just seemed like clear evidence that Wolf had sort of early onset acute dads. Like, I was like, you could just hear his kids groaning in the backseat of the car every time he made that joke. Um, But (laughs) I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. All right. The senator continues vaguely. He goes on. He says, We are inquiring into a practice initiated by one of this nation's largest manufacturers of digital computers. And and here the senator is grandstanding for the TV while Wolf gets to use some of his trademark narrative obfuscation on the, the rest of us to keep us from knowing what's really going on. But we learned from the senator that this company, Ed's company, is endangering the United States through its business practices. But, of course, we won't find out what those practices are for a few more pages. Uh, The senator now calls two witnesses, as you say, Brandon. The first is Madame Felice Dubois, a famous dressmaker from Paris. Uh, The wolf here uses the French word uh, coutier. Mm -hmm. And uh, the crux of the problem is this. Ed's business practices are leading to fewer divorces, and fewer divorces means selling fewer wedding dresses, which is bad for business and bad for America. Yeah, we're going to talk about this in the discussion here. <laughs> the, the, the way uh, these two witnesses before Ed come up present what an American citizen ought to be first. Um, what's their primary role? Um, it's, a, it's a huge part of what makes this story tick. Yeah, and here it's consumer, as we can we'll That's see. Right. And well, yeah, let's get let's get right into the the second of these witnesses. The second is Dr. Claude Honecker, a specialist in industrial psychology. And and now we finally learn what Ed's company does. They run a computerized matrimonial service, and it's ruining America. The crux of the problem is this: the world is dependent on a certain type of man, a man who works harder than there is any immediate need for him to work and harder than any of the incentives offered him by society justify. But because of Ed's computerized matrimonial service, these men just aren't working as hard. And America's economic productivity is down more than 20%. That's right. And this comes back at the end of the story, which to me puts the real kind of cynical topper on this story's cake. I mean, there's a real problem for me with um, this section is great, but the way our hero in this story brings this problem back and and represents it to the Senate creates a lot of problems for me and, and a lot of fun discussion I hope we'll be able to get to. Okay, I'm really looking forward to that because I think what you have in mind is something I reacted to pretty positively. So we'll see where we can we can bump heads uh, yes, uh, I about so. this. That'd be great. <laughs> so now the time has come for the Senate to interrogate Ed himself. Ed's company makes computers, the best computers, computers so good that they can absorb a truly vast number of facts. They also have a program that can weed out irrelevancies and discrepancies in that data. And here we are getting some, uh, some details that are, that are trite and sort of really kind of unnoticeable to us in the digital age uh, here, Brennan, but uh, which I suppose were quite sensational in the early 70s. And uh, these computers and uh, the program they run, uh, it turns out, have a real knack for matching people with uh, the perfect spouse. That's right. In fact, the main selling point of these computers, the Mark 20s or the Mark XXs, is that they are able to work with a lot of data. They're able to store a lot of information due to some computerized mumbo-jumbo, um, which, you know, is no different than kind of somebody consulting an astrological chart for, you know, 
knowledge. Wolf gives us a similar kind of rundown of the technological specifications of this computer. I do want to note in this section a detail about Ed that is really easy to miss. When Ed takes the stand, uh, Wolf says, he slipped into the aisle and walked up to the witness box. It was as though he were walking through the pews of a church again. The feeling came back across the years. And here we're given the first hint of information about Ed that will only be revealed later. But I think it's a wonderful indication, again, about the kind of society we live in where divorces are up and maybe people don't really go to churches except for weddings. Yeah, that's a really, it's another really great observation there, Brandon. So we get a bit of a digression here as Ed has to explain the first test case of their matrimonial service. The program matched up a young American man with a woman in Ethiopia, and they've been together ever since. The program identified that the young man was intensely interested in Coptic Christianity, and also that he did not fare well in an urban environment. And the program, therefore, narrowed the search to women from rural Ethiopia, where most people are Coptic Christians. And from there, it made thousands of other correlations before selecting the specific girl. Yeah, this section reminded me a lot of, uh, well, a verse from Second Corinthians, uh, from chapter 6 and, and, and verse 14. Um, and the reason why this came up, I'll, I'll go to in a moment, but let me just read the verse first. It says, Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness and iniquity? Or what communion hath light and darkness? And here we're given a, an indication. Um, this is kind of a famous biblical passage in, in, in the Christian tradition about why you should marry people who believe the same things you do, um, or at least it's often taken and interpreted that way. And what's interesting to me um, is that also in matchmaking, a lot of matchmaking practices are cultural and community-based. Um, in Judaism, you have like matchmakers that's they are like a part of the community. And so I found that this computer program um, is able to uh, like kind of in an odd way, understand so much about the way the world operates beyond just data. And I think it's something that Tom Larkin, its inventor, understood as well, because Wolf tells us that Tom has faith in it, which is a very interesting term to use for somebody who invents a process. That's really, that's really fantastic. Uh, I had not noticed that use of the word faith there at all. But yeah, you're right. We can see here in some sense that perhaps this uh, this computer is is functioning as as God in some some sense here. That's very good. But while we might see some uh, uh, some instances here of Christianity, uh, the senator uh, sees nothing but uh, but paganism here. He labels this program an oracle, uh, a pythoness, or someone's wise old grandmother. And this lets Ed make a speech in which he explains at some length that computers are not supernatural predictors. They're just machines doing what very smart humans have told them to do. And Brandon, this feels real hokey and outdated to me, these concerns. And uh, I, I really just couldn't sink my teeth into this part of the story at all. But I think that in 1970, this is what sold the story, would be my guess. That's astonishing to me that you think that because that's going to be the crux of our discussion um, is some of these concerns that are brought up here. And the one I do want to make uh, quote this again really quickly, that is part of Ed's speech, because I do want to correlate this first speech of Ed's and his last one. Um, so the first one, he says this, which to me is the major theme of the story, which we'll come back to. He says, all of us in the computer industry have fought the public desire to make something supernatural of our machines. But there is one way in which the public's misconception is useful. It often makes people do the logical thing, when the logical thing is something that would be called silly if it were suggested from 
another source. And then he goes on to describe the exact plot of Dante's Peak <laughs> in that paragraph. Um, but I just want our listeners to keep that in mind as we go through the story. Yeah, excellent. So now we come to the plot twist. Despite its flawless record, hardly anybody was subscribing to this computerized matrimonial service. The company was on the verge of canceling it when they discovered, however, that most of their new business selling computers and computer software came from agencies run by people who had used their matrimonial service. And so from that point on, Ed's company decided to give the service away for free to important people in business and government. That's right. And the senator believes at first blush before Ed describes why they're giving the service away for for free, that giving the service away for free is distinctly un-American. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's he's offended by this. It, exactly. To the core of his... To the core right, of his until game. he finds out that they're able to use it as a marketing ploy to, to do more business. There's a kind of... That's another kind of case of real cynicism in this story. Yeah, the, the senator even accuses Ed's company of destroying the fabric of society by decreasing the productivity of unhappy single men in high positions. Right, he calls it a side effect of the program. And and this story is actually full of these unintended consequences, I think. Yeah, but Ed disagrees with the senator, and he thinks that after the honeymoon phase is over, these happy men will return to work now even more productive because of their happiness. Well, because Wolf says they have something to work for, which the correlation to that means they have something to rest in apart from work. They're not resting from work, they're resting in something else. That resting in and resting from is a crucial distinction in some uh, scholastic thought about leisure and rest. What we rest from and what we rest in are very important in what makes us happy people. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to digging in on that. And the senator wonders then, if the service is so great, why hasn't Ed, a widower, used it himself? And Ed explains that he will shortly be traveling to Liverpool to meet a librarian named Marcia. And then the story comes to an end with Ed musing to himself that he was glad he hadn't been forced to explain to the senator that it was Marcia who had used the service, that she had found him, not the other way around. That, he thinks, would have sounded too silly. Right, a woman seeking out a man. It's a fun little inversion, I think, on, on kind of what we're getting from this story about how men not being able to find wives is, is, is this cause of, uh, I don't know, societal illness in some sense. Um, so I guess let's let's move on to the discussion. There was one thing I wanted to bring up um, that we kind of blew blew by pretty quickly, um, and maybe it's just a note, and maybe it'll turn into a conversation. We'll see. So I mentioned briefly that Tom has faith in something that he has created. Tom Larkin is the inventor of this software program, and I just want to bring up some some classical definitions of ideology, which will help maybe frame some of the concerns that I had about this story that you didn't feel were concerns about computers and people's um, maybe supernatural belief in their operations. So one one definition of ideology, and this is an older one, is, is basically ideology is when people engage in a practice where they don't really know what they're doing, but they do it anyway. And this is kind of the Soviet era, like, uh, or, or what we associate with Soviet era propaganda or Nazi propaganda, where people couldn't have possibly have known what they were doing because it would have been too horrible to act in the way they acted if they really knew. Um, but the kind of the new revised definition of ideology is we know exactly what we're doing and we do it anyway. And this is the logic of consumerism and kind of the... I don't know, for lack of a better word, propaganda that the West uses in particular 
to keep its citizens engaged in economic activities that benefit, quote, society. Um, whether or not they're good for anyone is another question. Right. Good good for the power structure, but not necessarily for everyone else. Right. And we know this uh, in most cases. Uh, so um, kind of the hipster culture in, in uh, you know, Brooklyn and Fishtown and Philadelphia are really emblematic of this. Like, you know, they know that buying mason jars instead of cups is like, you know, this antique. They, know, they can describe to you exactly why they're making the decisions they make. And being an elite consumer or a tasteful consumer is a part of that logic, but they still do it anyway. It's not really a rebellion against consumerism at all. It's actually built into the structure of consumerism. Yeah, they're just, in fact, being a, they're being a different type of consumer and, and actually crafting an identity around that. Around being an elite consumer in some way. And, Tom, and, and so what I'm trying to say is um, Tom who built this program knows how it operates and he still has faith in it. He is kind of representative of this logic of consumerism that I think underpins the entire story and the kind of society Wolf is trying to represent. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up and maybe that'll help frame some of the conversation going yeah. forward. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> so a major theme of this story addresses the rise of the supposed rational processes that are superseding supernatural ones. Um, Whether or not this is a good is a different question. But I really want to tease out first the connection between Ed's two speeches in the story. Um, Just a reminder, in the first one, he notes that the public's misconception about machines benefits the computer industry, industry, in that it often makes people do the logical thing when the logical thing would be called too silly to do if it were suggested from another source. And that, to me, is the key, the key line there. Um, and then in his final defense of Project Roses, which is the name of this <laughs> project, <Yeah. laughs> Ed elaborates on what he means. His company has discovered something that many people already know, but they've wrapped it into a new category of knowledge uh, that I think provides an authoritative thrust behind it. It moves the meaning of marriage into a new domain and and that allows it to be cast in a new light. And um, this new domain that it's a part of allows the senator, who is the representative of the people, to understand why marriage is beneficial again. Uh, This is like lost knowledge. And it refreshes the old, unfashionable knowledge and allows it to operate anew. So I just want to ask you, Glenn, what was your understanding of what Wolf is trying to get out here with the two speeches? And, and you know, how do they work for you as thematically gluing together the, the pieces of this story? Yeah, that's a great question, Brandon. So there were a couple of things that I saw uh, going on here uh, in, these, in, in, these, in these two speeches that you, you point out. Yeah, so the first thing that, that jumps out, of course, right, is this idea of computers as being scary. Uh, that there's something kind of almost unholy uh, about them, right? We've, everyone has just recently seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, and we're concerned that computers are going to uh, not just like ruin things, but actively murder us in space or any, or <laughs> wherever true. they can find us. Um, and so I think there are some concerns there that are going on uh, that, that the general public has that, that Wolf, as an engineer, as a scientist, is addressing uh, in this speech. And I think that's really sort of what I was getting at when I said that I, that I couldn't sink my teeth into that because I... I've, I've encountered this a million times, and I'm 
quite comfortable with the fact that there's a computer in my microwave and my TV and my car. Uh, there's a, there are like four computers in this room with us right now. I don't feel like any of them are about to murder me. I can only see three of them, though, Brandon, so you'll have to let me know if the other one starts to creep up on me. <laughs> I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, it, it, just as you're saying that, it, it totally strikes me that one of the stories we've lost in the past 30 years of kind of uh, the science fiction genre of TV, there's a classic story of the smart house that destroys the people inside of it. Every TV show with a science fiction edge that was produced from like 1980 to 2010 told this story. Yeah, and there's there's actually also a really great Ray Bradbury story uh, in The Illustrated Man about this that I, I would love for us to cover someday. Actually, it's great I would love uh, great that. Great story, yeah. yeah. Um, but so that was kind of my first impulse, and that was sort of perhaps why I was a little bit dismissive of, of the speech and the recap and didn't really feel the need to, to sort of really give detailed information on it. Clearly, you found some other things there, which I think is fantastic. So I think that, that you know, to say something... Uh, more positive and kind of just sort of more engaged with really what Wolf is is getting at here. I really liked in those speeches. I really do like the idea um, of of seeing here marriage as a strength, as a benefit to society, as 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 people people having relationships with another, people caring about each other, actually that actually being the bedrock upon which society should rest, and not simply consuming and and producing which i thought was i thought was really great but also i just as a historian thinking through what the world was like in 1970 i wasn't around then but in the 80s even still like this divorce epidemic was still going on all of my friends my, as a child all my friends parents were getting divorced um my parents got divorced for example and to me that just seemed like the way life is but now as an adult realizing that that is itself that is not good and you can see you know looking around now you can see actually where our emphasis on consuming and perhaps especially on producing is something that actually threatens those types of relationships and it's nice to see wolf here inverting that yeah i'm not sure that he does entirely invert it and that's kind of my uh, not beef with the story, but real interest in it as as a reader is that he his ultimate defense for marriage is that it makes people more productive. That is how they have to sell this to this quote not trial but hearing where the Senate is getting information about how this company is operating and why they're giving away their services for free and the way they have to defend their choices is by saying. Well, marriage, like good work will be just a, another unintended side effect of this program. And here's some charts that demonstrate that. Here's the data. And it's interesting to me, uh, that's how our society, we're like a data-obsessed culture. That's really how we operate. Everything has to be defended in some sense by data. Can I, I'm going to jump in there, Brandon, because yeah. I'm not sure that that's, I'm not sure that Wolf is the one who's speaking there. I don't think that's a conviction that he has. I think that I think that here actually he's showing us something that he he showed us in how the whip came back, which is that he is perceiving that society and especially the power segment of society are obsessed with data and 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 are obsessed with money and you need to show them the financial gain, the financial benefit of anything in order for them to sign off on it. In How the Whip Came Back, we saw very clearly that the impassioned plea of this is wrong to do to other people stood no chance of resonating, certainly not with the power structure, that the only chance that there was was to show somehow that this was not economically a good 
thing the the, the, re- ensla- the enslavement of people and the same thing here i feel like like here ed is actually being shrewd right and sort of saying i recognize i know who the senator in the center is i know what matters to him what his agenda is and the only way for me to defend what the, the product that i've created and the service that my company provides, this great service that I'm a, that he himself is about to to take benefit part from. of, yeah, to, yeah, to benefit he's, from. He's just really a benefactor. He is of it absolutely. He didn't seek it out himself, right? And he has he now has to he's now trying to sell it to someone on that person's own terms, which of course is good. That's good salesmanship, right? And and it's noted that he feels like a great. He wasn't a salesman, but he feels like he did a great sales job here, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that that's how Wolf is feeling too. I I don't think that I don't think if we asked Wolf if the you know the reason that he he married Rosemary and loved her so much is that he, she made him more productive. I don't think that I don't think he would say that at all, right? In fact, if I think if we asked him that question, he might punch us both in the <laughs> face and follow up with a roundhouse kick. Right. I mean, this story does have some real critiques to make about how society expects its men and women to behave in order to get the most benefit from them. And in fact, benefit is a benefit or benefactor or any bena word is really kind of prominent in this story there's a lot of it and and you know another theme of this story that i want to bring up that's kind of in line with in line with this is you know something along the lines that i want to call like this this society that wolf represents in this story is is entirely a society of unintended consequences and it's unclear to me who the actors that are doing good actually are in the society and between this story and how the whip came back wolf is communicating his, his sense of being troubled by the kind of society he lives in. Who are the people who stand for good? And I want to walk through, um, you know, just some of the examples in the story of these unintended consequences and then maybe maybe discuss them. Um, so it seems in general in this story that goodness is an accidental byproduct of both industry and governance rather than being the explicit goal of each. Um, the senator explicitly points out that this marriage program has the unintended consequence of destroying society. I'm actually not sure he's wrong about that, and that's the next thing I want to talk about. Ooh, all right, uh, <laughs> that's a bold that's a bold claim <laughs> um, for reasons he doesn't address, but are in the story. And and I, it's just maybe the topper for this conversation. But as a representative of the people, the senator is concerned about the following things in society: the economy is reliant, or at least a section of the economy, is reliant upon the kind of third and fourth market, mar- like marriage markets that have popped up. And he's really concerned about that. The work life is focused on explicitly. It's not even implicit. And this is another example of this kind of consumer logic. We know we're being exploited to work more than we ought to, but we do it anyway. Um, this is a big part of how Dr. Honecker's discussion about how society exploits workers. And there's an implied message behind the whole kind of affair of this story. And that's um, the citizens in the society are expected to sacrifice their own happiness and well-being in order to keep this society operating. And then on the other hand, the program success is an unintended side effect of the company's main goal, which is sales. So they're giving it away for free because they can sell more computers and have lifelong customers as a result um, because they offer so much. They get people hooked on the programs. This is actually exactly how our computer sales market works <laughs> today. Um, so I just, you know, I, I, I don't know if there's a real question there. Maybe, Glenn, 
do you have um, a sense of what Wolf is commenting on about the two major actors in society, which are government and industry, and and whether any goodness that befalls us is just an unintended consequence of their own, I don't know, greed is probably the best word to use here. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think greed probably is actually the right word to use here. And, and, and something that, that I think is really very interesting, both about this story and about the language that you and I have been using to discuss it, is the use of this word society, which is, you know, I hesitate to say as a word Wolf is using. I, I think it's a word Wolf's character is using. I think it's a word that the senator in the center is using here. When he says, you're ruining the fabric, fabric of society, or this is bad for society, what he means is it's bad for the power structure, of which he, of course, is a part, right? That his position and his livelihood and his lifestyle is utterly dependent on people uh, producing uh, for not a lot of money and spending, consuming with the, the, the not a lot of money that they get, right? And and that's really what he means by society. By society, he does not mean our relationships with one another. He doesn't mean our relationships with even our, our institutions or the good functioning of a justice system. He doesn't mean uh, churches and schools operating, right? He means he means money. Right. That's Com- what he's talking community about. is is not in what he's interested in here. He's interested in the individual as an economic agent. Um and I think that I really enjoy the way Wolf writes that into this story because it's so much a part of our life it's hard to even recognize because it's it is the the the, the warp and wolf of our current fabric of society. Um, and I think Wolf is just really onto something in, in some of these early stories about his being critical of the infinite production and infinite capital that is supposed to be a part of our daily lives. And there are real ethical concerns about those things as well. There are. I mean, he's, we're talking about here this the, the exploitation of labor or the exploitation of people solely as as producers and consumers with no regard for their function in a community or their their own personal happiness their their or their salvation you know humans are not souls they're just machines here right and, and it's he, yeah, interesting we, to note it's interesting to note that actually the thing that does the sort of matching up of of people for their actual happiness is an unsold a soulless machine well i think there's also a third level here um that uh, when I mentioned the senator doesn't address the reasons why it's destroying society, this is probably the reason why it might. Both of the examples were given in this story, and we both know Wolf is a very careful writer. So <laughs> both of the examples of the relationships were given in this story. Um, the third one is kind of off screen, so to speak. It's Tom Larkin. We don't know much about what he's doing. We know he's honeymooning outside of the country, but that wouldn't be so unusual. But the relationships, the success stories of the relationships we're told are both multinational matches, right? They're both American citizens finding with the intention to marry somebody outside the country. And um, I'm not talking about xenophobia here at all. What I'm talking about is the idea of true love that we have within our, our culture, this destined, the idea of the destined one to be with whom, you know, we can live out our lives uh, within happiness. It's actually kind of a beautiful lie, we're told, because what the function of 
most marriages uh, and most relationships is actually to bolster up small communities. Matchmaking, for instance, is rooted in small community networks uh, where people get to know each other. We, we have this term like the, the, the love is like written in the stars. This actually comes from astrologers were matchmakers for people within their communities. And so we have this sense that the cosmos is telling us that we can find our true love, when in reality, the person we'll end up partnering with is typically very much part of our same socioeconomic status in society. Typically, uh, there are all sorts of similarities that a computer would recognize. The real danger, though, would be if you do have a computer that does recognize your perfect match, and most people's perfect matches, as kind of the examples were given in the story, are from all over the globe, you lose society as we know it. Um, and that was just an interesting little note. I, it, it was interesting to me that those were the examples that, that Gene Wolfe uses in this story. And that's actually a legitimate concern for any society. That's a really great observation, Brandon, that I, I just didn't even notice. For one, I have to say, I guess I, even while you were explaining that that these uh, that men were going overseas, going out of the country to, to find their prospective partners i i had to think about what the other one was and my thought was no he's going to liverpool that oh yeah that isn't another country i forgot i'm not living in england anymore and <laughs> right. so i just couldn't i did, didn't read it that way as a as shock um my so my first instinct here brandon is that is that what wolf wolf is doing this merely uh maybe not merely but primarily as a demonstration that this is how awesome these computers are that they they can think they can get access to people to women living in rural ethiopia in 1970 this that's how much information you can store in this computer and how quickly and how well it can go through it i think that was probably the primary reason for this but i think you bring up a great point that we have i think we reading this now in 2017 where we no longer have that sense of awe about this can actually i think find this this bit here that you have you have found and i think that's really fantastic but i i wonder um you know i think you also you're right to point to marriage principally you know sort of being in you know sort of in a, in the pre-modern world certainly the world that i study for a living is about property it again is about economics it's about the inheritance of property uh which is you know farms mostly farm farmland we you know we we don't live in a society like that anymore because now we're all serfs for corporations which has at least the one benefit of making us mobile and not right. tied to to land and i don't you know i'm so i'm not i i guess i don't find that to be particularly threatening and i think i, I you know i feel like i have to point out too that of course you and i are both with partners right. who are from places a thousand miles or more away but, from where we grew up but in terms of kind of the idea of america as a, a nation state right we're still marrying within that. Imagine, imagine like the, the whole notion of like just saying I'm an American within two generations of global intermarrying like this, you would really have to dissolve something like borders. Like it would have massive mm-hmm. unintended side effects. Well, I, so I agree with you there that you're right. That right. Yes. If, if most Americans married people who aren't Americans, that what it means to be an American would certainly change. I, I don't see what No, I'm not saying is. that's a problem. I'm saying that, that it, it is actually a threat to the idea of society that we have. I'm saying it would cause massive changes in the global system. You're taking on yeah. the, the, the you're, you're embodying the persona of the senator in the center here, who, for whom this would be, this would be a problem. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but I don't think that that's, I, I guess really what I mean is to say that I'm not sure that Wolf is, I'm not sure Wolf is grappling with that, but I think it's really awesome. No, but I think it's there. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. you're right. I mean, that's a really interesting. I didn't really even, I, I mean, I have a very bad habit of reading, uh, 
stories in their kind of current cultural context. I, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a bad habit at all. That's what we're that's what we're here right. to do. But I totally <laughs> forgot that this was written like also a year after two thousand one came out. The same as like how the whip came back. Wolf is forty at this point. He's been married for like twenty years. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of interesting cultural context and historical context around the story. But just reading it with um, kind of uh, contemporary lenses to me that really jumped out. That of course that would that would absolutely radically change the status quo um, if people's identities I think again I want to bring up the true love thing if people really identified uh, as their main goal as a human being would be to love another person as long as the right source told them they were supposed to love that person and that's a whole other topic about how computers have kind of usurped authority this idea of the internet as authority is a very strange idea we all know there's people behind it but we don't really care who they are or what their goals are because we are able to accept this thing in our society as a new authority. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think those are kind of the main points I had about this story. Glenn, was there anything else that kind of jumped out at you at this story? No, that was uh, those were the sort of the main things that I that I wanted to talk about as well. I mean, I, I again, especially since we read this back to back with how the whip came back, this, this consumers and producers, the scathing critique of a society that is nothing but producers and consumers and then the power structure that lives on on top of them was real real clear to me and this is a part of gene wolf that i don't think i was familiar with uh before nah, we started this project yeah, me so. neither i never really read him as a critiquer of capital society and the like western capital civilization i mean he's asked he doesn't talk about soviet union or communism at all he in these stories, spends a lot of time critiquing um, the negative impacts of capitalism on its citizens. Yeah, and I think we see this uh, quite a bit in Paul's Treehouse as well. You certainly found some good stuff uh, there, or stuff that's relevant to yeah. this discussion there. And so, yeah, it is. It's just really very interesting to see this this phase of Wolf's writing. And I'm really glad that we've gone through these works kind of systematically the way that we have, because this is going to affect, I think, my reading of when we get to some of the major novels. I'm going to start looking for this kind of stuff in the Solar Cycle, for example. Yeah, I mean, we are well past kind of the phase of writers we'd associate with kind of like the angry young men who who are just. Uh, beaten up by society wolf is relatively successful at this point. yes he's an upper middle class white man in his 40s living in the right. very nice suburbs of chicago at this point with a brood of children and a you know very happy very successful marriage so he's not coming at this from a perspective of f- himself feeling beaten down and exploited he's coming at this from the perspective of someone who's observing observing the power structure and seeing how it's exploiting other people yeah and, and having and a real concern and 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 asking his readers to like wake up to address this uh, as moral actors is a kind of a phrase we've used before to describe, I think, what Wolf wants his readers to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and of course, I think one of the things that, that you and I both find very interesting about about what we're finding here in, 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 in this early Wolf work is also that a lot of these views are coming f- very clearly coming from his his Christianity. Yeah, his Catholicism is absolutely crucial to this. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Of Relays and Roses. Um, I'd just love to hear our readers' general reaction, both to our conversation. You know, one thing that we left a little underdeveloped, though maybe not, was uh, which is uh, the concept of like destiny and true love and kind of those things that he's playing with. So I'd love to see more conversation about that. Uh, next time, we'll be covering the story 
The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories, which you can find in the collection of the same name, as well as in the collection The Best of Gene Wolfe. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>